Hello, and welcome to the ATS Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly's October podcast, focusing on the topic of mindfulness in COPD and chronic lung disease. We have the pleasure of learning from two experts in the field who are involved in both the research and practice of mindfulness techniques. Our interviewer is Dr. Samantha Harrison, a senior lecturer in health sciences research, Teesside University Health and Social Care Institute. Dr. Harrison undertook her PhD within the School of Psychology at the University of Leicester while working as a physiotherapist within the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Department. During her postdoctoral training at West Park Healthcare Centre in Toronto, Canada, she has continued to use mixed methodologies to explore the psychological status of individuals with COPD. Her work in this area has led to her increasing interest in the role of mindfulness for this population. Dr. Harrison will be interviewing Dr. Roberto Benzo, a respiratory physician and the founding director of the Breathing and Behavior Laboratory at the Mayo Clinic, which develops and tests interventions that promote a participatory model of care, fosters self-awareness and consciousness of human behavior, and studies the impact of these interventions on biologic markers and health outcomes. In particular, Dr. Benzo's Mindful Breathing Laboratory focuses on the study of how self-awareness, mindfulness and self-management impact chronic diseases such as lung cancer and COPD. I'll now pass the floor over to Dr. Harrison. I am delighted to have been invited to interview Professor Benzo about mindfulness and its possible application in COPD. Um, So perhaps if you wouldn't mind just beginning by describing what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the awareness that uh, comes from paying attention uh, to the present moment uh, in a particular way, which is on purpose, uh, without uh, the liking or disliking, without with a non-judgmental attitude. Uh, so uh, just uh, just awareness, pure awareness of what is actually happening right now uh, in this moment of uh, my life, your life, and uh, again without liking or disliking. So awareness without judgment. Awareness without right? judgment. I mean, with yeah, with a definitive desire to do that. So it's a this attention on purpose. So um, kind of a single tasking. Uh, okay. So and why is it? Do you think um, that mindfulness is particularly important for individuals with COPD? I think that um, uh, the symptoms or how we feel. Uh, it's not just related to our structural abnormalities, let's say in our lungs or in our airways. It's a combination of things. It's how we perceive uh, different uh, events that happen in our life, even how we perceive pain, so uh, how we perceive shortness of the breath. In COPD, shortness of the breath, but this is completely translatable to pain, for instance. So the thing is that there are emotional and uh, attitudinal components of how we perceive our symptoms that make us, the symptoms have a much bigger impact on us or much less impact on us. I mean, it's well known, like uh, particularly in pain, where there's much more research done, that uh, people with the same level of pain, when depending on how they actually embrace the phenomena of pain, how they actually be able to be there for the pain or to tolerate the pain, accept the pain as something that is happening in the moment, they can have much less impact in their life. So much less catastrophizing of what actually is happening. And that is something that is, again, 
it has been measured. So how much we catastrophize about our symptoms make us more miserable or less miserable by having them. So I guess it's something that is, is not directly related that mindfulness will actually fix the structure and abnormality of the lung definitely will not do that, but it will have a tremendous impact or can have a tremendous impact in how we perceive and react to our symptoms. Okay. So it sounds like um, mindfulness is not only important for people who have CEPD, but may also be um, applicable in those who have other chronic conditions and, and for everybody to embrace in their life. Um, do you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that is such a commonsensical and human uh, at, um, attribute or skill that we can get that um, it will help people with COPD, heart failure, diabetes, stroke, uh, and uh, or people with other chronic conditions like uh, you know unhappiness or, or uh, other other problems that we actually carry during our life. So it's a certainly very translatable, but the, the importance in the context of chronic lung disease is something that it can add to what we already are doing. So it's, an, it's one more tool in the armamentarium of, uh, uh, to give the patient, to help them to deal, to live, to cope with uh, his or her chronic condition. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness programs I know can include um, all these different kinds of techniques um, such as meditation whilst listening to music, uh, mindful breathing, a full body scan, chanting, mindful drumming. Um, Which techniques do you think are most likely to be useful for individuals with COPD? I think that uh, the awareness of the breath, uh, like um, being aware of of their breath and uh, particularly using some techniques that we are already doing, like uh, personal breathing, but in the context of single tasking, so sitting to just do some personal breathing could be a tremendous uh, mindfulness uh, technique to use. And the others, I mean, but it's important to, in a program of mindfulness, to offer to the patient other things that can be more applicable to them, like uh, mindfulness on the walk, so mindful walking, or, uh, uh, you know, mindfulness of emotions and sensations. There are, you know, meditations that you can do that uh, it can be done uh, in a very formal way, so devoting time to just do that. But then if you do it enough, then it can translate to the rest of the day. So this awareness that we're trying to foster, uh, cultivate, will spill over the rest of the day. So, I mean, those techniques like uh, particularly meditation on the breath, I think would be the, the number one to, to kind of try. But, I mean, the, but the body scan, which is having the sensation of the body in the different parts, and um, or uh, even um, listen, mindful listening, or um, there are many of them that can be used. And uh, but I think that the, the, the breath is a, the starting point. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you say um, that the mindful breathing would be really important for people who have um, chronic lung disease, um, because there have been some concerns expressed about the use of mindful breathing in a population whose disease is characterized by shortness of breath. Um, so what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, so the, um, the practice of being aware of our breath uh, 
really open the door to a much bigger awareness uh, uh, because uh, it kind of gets you in touch with um, the rest of your body. And uh, it's a different thing that thinking that we are only aware of our breath when we are very short of breath because I mean, that, is a, that is the actual problem. The thing is that uh, when you are aware of um, how you're breathing or what's your, and you create a higher awareness of your own body, you can see pretty quickly when things are going in the wrong direction and perhaps you can have a much better um, opportunity to do something about that like, uh, let's say, if you're going into an exacerbation using an action plan, like an emergency plan with uh, using your nebulizer or the, the start of a, of a treatment, or even when you see that your emotions are going out of line, that is something that actually happens naturally when you actually do any awareness practice because our emotions are something that are so frequent in us that can take us places that we don't want, but starting with a very simple awareness of the breath in the moment in which we are not in dire straits or we're very sick is uh, kind of, again, the opportunity to this bigger awareness that allows us to find some degree of balance that, uh, in the rest of our, our day. So um, I think that um, that would be my answer. So, and uh, in a way, in a way, uh, not being the people with COPD or people with chronic lung disease, they may not be kind of a surprise when they are, I mean, all of a sudden very short breath. They will probably have a better kind of a tune in to their symptoms, tune in to their body, be able to pause earlier when things are going the wrong direction and then make better decisions. So. Um, uh, I think that, it, and it's also approaching something that is very sensitive, as you said very well, the breath that is usually a problem and uh, kind of um, uh, take it more in and see what is the relationship with my short of breath. So it's, a, so it's, I mean, we usually try to push away. I don't want to be short of breath at all. So mm-hmm. with mindfulness and doing this uh, awareness of the breath, this uh, very slow pace breathing that you do when you do personal breathing doing nothing else but that and then uh, I mean uh, uh, provide the opportunity to kind of uh, live with those shortcomings of COPD I feel I feel mm-hmm. so that's really interesting so certainly by bringing um, awareness to your breath it might in turn actually improve um, disease management so so that's really interesting um, so my next question is, so traditionally mindful programs run um, every week in two-hour sessions for eight weeks. Um, do you think this format is feasible for individuals with COPD? Uh, well, the, the pilot study that we've done at Mayo Clinic uh, with uh, the, the typical mindfulness-based stress reduction is uh, needs some changes for COPD. And um, what we found is that there are two particular practices that like um, awareness of the breath and mindful walking that they really, really uh, are very well accepted and used as effective by the patients. And, and reminding ourselves that the patients are the true experts for the disease, and that's what we learn from them. I, and I think that the, the you know, the eight-week uh, programs uh, with two hours uh, every time may not be as much that is necessary, but um, I think that a shorter program, uh, like a a shorter duration 
in which you really go into practice and then sharing that uh, that will probably be the adaptations that are necessary. Okay. Um, so you described a little bit about how your program runs there. Could you just um, go into that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, of course. The, um, we offer mindfulness in two different ways. One is a kind of a, a touch of mindfulness. People come for 90 minutes and they learn about, you know, uh, how being aware of our emotions can actually uh, make us much shorter breath and uh, increase our symptoms and how important it is, not only uh, in emotion but in, also in the social aspect like uh, our relationships and, uh, and how actually being in touch or in tune with physical activity in a very, very mild way, uh, it can be uh, also allow people to do more and to feel better. So these three things, kind of a very mindful and slow physical activity, mindfulness of emotions and mindfulness of relationships, uh, they really touch uh, very important parts of the, what it makes quality of life in COPD. Um, that is the one program that we offer um, to every patient that comes. But also, we are uh, doing an eight-week program in which we do. It's just uh, once a month, sorry, once a week, and uh, it's just about an hour. And uh, people come. We do just mindful practices like a mindful breathing, and then uh, a very mindful uh, and, and slow, repetitive exercise with the, with the upper extremities. Uh, teach them mindful walking, and then, uh, then the rest of the the rest of the of the session devotes to how did you do with your own practice? Because it's not uh, m mindfulness like uh, is something that need to be embraced. So we really encourage people to try this in their own life and see how how that works, or what works and what doesn't work, and uh, and that sharing is extremely rich. And people learn from the true experts, which are the, the, the patients. And, uh, and, you know, and we're progressing into the different uh, aspects of mindfulness, like, uh, in, again, the breath, uh, the body, and then we go into more deeper stuff, like uh, how mindfulness has to help us to kind of deal and identify emotions and their relationship with others. That, that is pretty much how the, the progression of the eight weeks go. Okay, so... It sounds there when you were talking that there were lots of benefits of patients being able to share their experiences of mindfulness with each other. Um, so that brings me to the next question, which is, should mindfulness be delivered in a group or should it be delivered as a one-on-one -on -one session? Well, this is a very, very important question that you just uh, have done. And uh, I think that I would just say both. Uh, the thing is that sometimes uh, getting people in a group is difficult. And um, uh, I think it's, it's useful from the behavioral standpoint because by, you know, by modeling, by seeing other people do things and say that people saying this is working for me, is, it's very important to adopt that behavior. And uh, so modeling is an important factor. And so the group setting is important. However, sometimes you don't have that opportunity to bring people either to bring it to the center or they have transportation issues. The same thing that we actually see in pulmonary rehabilitation. So I think that the one-on-one -on -one, uh, also has a role, kind of having like a, a mindful coach, and that is something that we're starting to uh, to test here uh, at Mayo Clinic, is like the having people being talking to a coach and then also have the opportunity if they want to, uh, to actually join a telephonic group support in which we all kind of uh, uh, call in into a number and we, 
we just share stuff I mean uh, about our mindful practice and uh, during the day and where are we struggling with and how this uh, awareness can help us to navigate uh, difficulties. So you were talking about delivering mindfulness actually over the telephone. Um, so it sounds like mindfulness could be delivered as a distance intervention. Um, again, would you be able to comment a little bit uh, on that? Yeah, we are, I think, in the, in the beginning uh, or the um, initial steps of trying to do uh, I guess, uh, telephonic uh, coaching or telephonic mindful coaching uh, or um, mindfulness intervention over the phone is something that, I guess, a, a branch out uh, out of necessity of um, finding the same stumble blocks that we have in pulmonary here that elderly people or frail people kind of come. And so usually are, again, very, uh, I guess, uh, very well-defined Calls, kind of going through things that are extremely simple, and uh, those uh, interventions by phone usually need to be started by by face to face, at least one visit in which you go over what mindfulness is about, and uh, and a few of the practices, and then um, we try to do the uh, the telephonic coaching uh, sometimes aided or helped by uh, using uh, video technology so we actually can see each other on Skype or we can see each other on some other way of uh, uh, seeing the face so we can, we can uh, get to a full engagement of the individual. Um, you know, mindfulness is something that uh, needs to be really taken up uh, in the beginning. It's not something that is like a recipe. and uh, So it, it's very important to have at least one one-on-one -on -one um, intervention before you go into the telephonic uh, uh, intervention. So uh, I think it's feasible uh, and uh, we are in the process of uh, creating data for that, like uh, creating science that will say that these uh, um, sessions, mindfulness on the phone, are really helpful for the bottom line. So, and the bottom line is people improving their well-being, which is that the outcome that we use uh, here in the studies that we're doing right now. Okay. So it sounds like having that face-to-face -face contact is really important to begin with, but distance interventions may have their place um, in encouraging patients to keep up their mindful practice, I guess, when they've, they've left the center. Um, and it would be great. To, to see some of your results um, from that research that you're doing at the moment. Um, so do you think mindfulness should be incorporated within a pulmonary rehab program? I mean, certainly there does seem to be some overlap with some of the breathing exercises. It'd be easy to incorporate mindfulness into those. Um, or do you think it's something which should be kept quite separate? I think that um, uh, if we go to the very core of the, of the word rehabilitation, uh, rehabilitation means to rehabit, rehabit uh, uh, your body again, to kind of uh, um, get back to your body and, uh, and, uh, and use it in the way it is. So I think that mindfulness is one more option that uh, can be used in the rehabilitation process of a patient with COPD. I think that would make tremendous strides in improving quality of life for people by making do exercises, but we're still having, um, I mean, uh, aspects of, uh, particularly the emotional aspect of the individual that is, uh, um, that in which 
we need tools to improve uh, uh, people's emotional intelligence, so the capacity to identify emotions and do something pro effective with them. And, and I think mindfulness has that role. So there's something else that could be available at uh, rehabilitation centers for patients that are willing to, willing to take up uh, on such a journey. It's, um, it's, it's a different type of rehab, and, um, and I think it's synergistic, and, uh, and they can both be done, and um, it depends on the, on the willings, uh, willingness of the individual, I think. Mm -hmm. And certainly, um, as a, a healthcare professional who delivers pulmonary rehab, I know that the emotional aspect of CUPD is something that I don't feel like we've dealt very well with in the past. Um, so having a, a tool like mindfulness to be able to incorporate into the rehab program um, would definitely be uh, something that I think healthcare professionals would be keen to do. Um, so in addition to these two um, hour sessions for the eight weeks, which traditionally um, are delivered as part of the program. There's also a full day retreat in week six. So I know that you've delivered mindfulness in a slightly different format for, for people with CUPD, but what are your thoughts about the necessity and the feasibility of incorporating a full day retreat into a mindful program? I think it's difficult to, it's difficult to implement. Uh, it's, um, I I, be, I believe that this is a strong experience to have a retreat, and uh, I have patients that have done the retreat, um, but uh, it's, uh, the, uh, so far in my experience has been less, um, um, less accepted just because you have to play, plan the full day and, uh, and you know, with everything that comes with it. So um, the, the real impact of uh, mindfulness is the practice on a day-to-day, -day, uh, so it, it can become a part of who you are, a way of living. And um, so the willingness of having awareness of whatever is happening to you. And uh, so I, I think that I stress more the idea of uh, having a, a good practice in the days between the eight sessions, the eight-week sessions, and I think that while well, the retreat is certainly desirable and important, and and it may be available, uh, I think that is not a mandatory part. And uh, I, that that is my thinking. So the the retreat is coming from the already well-established mindfulness-based stress reduction for people that uh, with different chronic conditions, and uh, particularly stress and chronic pain. That was the way that it initially started. But it, I find it um, that there are some changes for for individual conditions like COPD that will need, you know, for instance, not to do the retreat, to do shorter sessions, and um, and perhaps again in in some cases to have uh, other alternatives like um, you know phone contacts or um, and the group support over the phone, things like that. But for the retreat, I don't think it's something that is that feasible patients that, that are more frail. Mm -hmm. I see. So uh, certainly attending the sessions and then participating in their own mindful practice at home is what would be important. And we know that um, patients find it difficult, for example, to do their exercises at home. So it's likely that they may also find it challenging to sometimes incorporate the mindful uh, practice into their lives. But you mentioned that by 
providing uh, phone support, um, we can perhaps um, encourage people to be able to do this. Um, do you think it's necessary that we provide patients with long-term follow-up after the completion of the mindful program? Well, I think that um, having uh, places where people can go and practice, uh, like a support group, we have a support group once a month for patients that have finished the mindful pro mindfulness program. They, some people call in to their support group, some people come in, in person. I think it's an important thing because uh, uh, social support is uh, is a tremendous uh, part of uh, maintaining the the willingness to live, uh, having purpose, and, and people coming with you know uh, a lot of um, eagerness to to see the other other patients on, uh, that has gone through uh, the the program and then uh, and they really value their work because as I said the patient is a true expert so. I think that having very simple uh, support groups that in which people talk to each other, uh, and, and now we have many different formats that are possible. It could be even electronic, or it can be on the phone, or it can be in person, or in person or on the phone, like we do here. Um, I think that will help to the um, to sustain the practice uh, and um, the. You know, um, even if they come and just uh, do some very simple mindful movements, and that is, and then some chatting, that actually make people uh, go home, live with uh, this renewed interest on their practice, and then and the support of other people suffering the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. And the, I mean, just just to clarify, the mindful movement that we do in in the different uh, programs are extremely simple, extremely slow. It's like a, a look, they look like Tai Chi type of movement in which we just we being aware of the breath and moving our arms and walking a little bit. And that, you know, uh, this research now that has been published that even uh, low-intensity exercise can have very, very long-term results in chronic disease. So I think that uh, is... Um, is one less, uh, I guess, um, obstacle for people to do exercise because they don't need to think about doing harder and faster. They just need to do it. It's the just do it of it. Okay, so I think the idea of having um, support groups and for patients um, to be able to have that contact with each other sounds like it would be really important in uh, maintaining mindful practice. Um, so that really brings me to who do you think should be delivering mindfulness? Um, does it need to be a person who's trained in aspects of counseling or psychology, or could it be delivered by another healthcare professional such as a nurse or physiotherapist? Or perhaps it doesn't need to be a healthcare professional at all. What are your thoughts about that? So I think that um, uh, healthcare professionals uh, like a nurse or a respiratory therapist or a, or a physical therapist may have some advantage of uh, kind of putting together the, how mindfulness can help with shortness of the breath. And uh, I think that all of them could deliver uh, a mindfulness intervention if they are trained into it. Uh, and uh, also, and if they have a mindfulness practice in their own life, those two are really necessary conditions for for something like that. I mean, like, uh, I mean, to the, to teach mindfulness, to deliver mindfulness, 
uh, you have to embrace it. And it needs to be part of your own life, and uh, it's not just a recipe. And uh, that to deliver a mindfulness intervention. Other opportunities that uh, are coming up is to actually use technology for breathing awareness. I mean, just the simple breathing awareness and see what that does. And that may need no preparation. I mean, it's just to show people the technology. And there's some technology for meditation or for awareness of the breath during the day that we're doing some research too. But I think that it could be useful and it could be something that it could be totally integrated into the current uh, pulmonary rehabilitation programs. So these are the two options, I mean, like uh, using technology or having people train in mindfulness with the mindfulness practice themselves that can just do it uh, I mean, as part or in addition to the pulmonary rehabilitation programs. Okay. So certainly research um, shows that mindfulness is most successful and the person responsible for delivering it participates in their own mindful uh, practice, which is um, echoes what you've just said. Um, so my next question is a personal one. Um, do you practice mindfulness yourself? And yeah. um, are you able to tell us a little bit about your own mindful practice? Yeah. Uh, yes, I have a personal meditation practice and uh, and uh, and um, and a mindfulness practice uh, that kind of uh, roots out of that. It's, it's awareness practice and. Uh, I've been doing that for now um, 11 years, and, uh, and it's, uh, again, it's part of who I am, and uh, uh, it's, it's not a thing, it's just a way of living, and, uh, and, and that is the beauty of that, you, don't, you have to uh, slowly uh, crawling uh, into the different aspect of uh, your being, and... Uh, and you know, I'm, I think that that's why I'm very enthusiastic of, uh, and, and at this point, I'm just more than eager to kind of uh, transpire my own practice into what I do, uh, which is uh, trying to decrease suffering of people with COPD. Mm -hmm. So actually, by um, getting mindful practice into more healthcare, we might not only be helping the patients themselves, but also helping healthcare professionals deal with some of the stresses and, and things of everyday life as well. Um, so my question, you've mentioned technology a lot as a way of delivering mindfulness. Um, one of my questions is, do you think technology uh, has a place in an older adult's uh, population? Because obviously there are concerns that as older adults, um, patients with CUPD may not um, be able to or may not wish uh, to use some of the advanced technology uh, that is available? Uh, I think it's a very good question, and I think that uh, it's a matter of trying. Technology needs to be very simple, uh, and, um, and uh, it will not be for everyone. Uh, what we're using right now, use I mean, either apps on the phone or apps in a tablet, and what we're seeing is that, uh, again, it needs to be ridiculously simple, just touching and having. And, uh, and the other thing is that the good thing of technology that people really request is that they are able to see their own practice. They are able to see themselves. And there's, there's very well-funded um, and uh, strong behavioral theories about what observing our behavior does to our own behavior. So it means that by looking at what we're doing, we learn from ourselves, which is the, the person that we listen the most to, ourselves. And uh, so 
the technology allows you to put, let's say, in bars, how many steps you do and how many times of breathing you've done and how do you feel, and you're actually able to kind of answer a question on the tablet saying, well, how do you feel today? Excellent, very good, good, fair, or poor, and how's your breathing? And then you see how that is going, and then you start to kind of uh, connect the dots. I mean, people start to connect the dots that when they do something more, they feel better, and, they, and that is a very unique uh, learning point. I mean, they learn about themselves, and then th this is where technology helps. So, I mean, in, in essence or in summary, it needs to be simple. And uh, that's why the, the initial approach to technology with patients with COPD need to be very careful and uh, making sure that the patient is really getting that. I mean, and, uh, and are willing to do it. That's why the, the first visit is so important. Uh, but I think it has a role. I mean, and... Uh, and it has a role, and then and it, you know, I think it's our, it's our part of uh, my own mission and uh, to try to see if uh, technology um, can help into this uh, awareness life, awareness of life uh, that is pretty much the mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. um, so my final question, um, I've put my research hat back on, and I was wondering how could we evaluate a mindfulness program um, I think that the mindfulness program needs to be evaluated by a very commonsensical thing. Do you feel better or not? And for that, I think that uh, uh, quality of life is the way to go. I mean, this is specific quality of life. And uh, we need to answer the, the critical questions. Are, are you less short of breath? Are you, are you less fatigued? The two more common symptoms in COPD, fatigue and short of the breath. Do you feel emotionally better? I mean, the CRQ, the Chronic Respiratory Questionnaire, is a tremendous instrument because actually assess those specific domains, fatigue, dyspnea, short of the breath, uh, emotion, and self-efficacy, mastery, that's being called. The St. George is another very good tool because it has this uh, subdomain of impact how the disease impact on you. I think that if mindfulness is going to work in COPD, it need to improve the bottom line, which is how do you feel and perform during your day, how, you, how well you live your life, and, then, um, and how well you have awareness of what actually is happening to you, that you can do something about it. We can probably can do nothing about the, the opening of our airways in COPD, but we can do a lot about understanding emotions and understanding behavior that has everything to do with showing the breath. I think that recommending those outcome measures is, is really, really helpful. And, and I think the other thing is when, the, when we're talking about how a person feels, um, sometimes quantitative tools aren't always sensitive enough to pick up all those improvements that are really important to the patient. Um, so I certainly think qualitative methodologies may have a place in evaluating um, mindfulness programs as well. Um, sorry. I think, no, sorry. I mean, I want to just mention something that I think is coming up in the, in the assessment of emotions of COPD, and it's the, conce the concept of flourishing. Flourishing is the, the ratio between your positive attitude, optimism, positive asset comparing to your negative asset. How much you are looking at the half of the glass that is full compared to the half of the glass that is empty. And that is, I mean, pretty much at the core of flourishing. And that can be measured, and actually there's uh, research coming up on how, you know, the degree of positive asset really is a mediator of what, how interventions do well impacting quality of life. So I think that there is coming, we're starting to understand how to measure the emotions and 
that in a way that really matters, you know, I mean, and what, when I say really matters, is how much impact how you live your life. So I think that this concept of flourishing will be flourishing and you know, positive asset versus negative asset will be something that will have a role in our outcome measures in COPD and in pulmonary rehabilitation itself. Mm-hmm. And there is actually a questionnaire, isn't there, to measure positive and negative affect. Um, yes. Is that a questionnaire that you're familiar with? Absolutely. It's the PANAS. It's the P-A-N-A-S and uh, has 20 items, 10 positive affects and 10 negative affects. And then you measure that and you score the negative and the positive and you do the ratio and the ratio. When the ratio is higher than three, that is the, what is called the, the clinical, this, uh, the ratio between positive and negative affects is called the clinical positivity ratio. And then when you have that, then, uh, I mean, above three is called, it's the state of flourishing. And, uh, and then there's uh, research that is just now being published in patient education and counseling that is, uh, we show that this is a mediator between uh, the cell, a cell management intervention and the improvement of quality of life. If you don't have that degree of positivity and optimism, you don't hit home. You don't actually improve as much. And that, you know, can be translated to any intervention. So kind of in rehab, when we say, well, is this person going to take up the a physical activity program, an exercise program, I think that measuring how positive that individual is can have a great, can be a great glimpse on how the person can do after uh, the program. Okay, that, no, that description was really useful because I know that that's a questionnaire that um, working in CUPD we don't see an awful lot, um, yeah. but definitely one which might be quite useful to, to look at the effectiveness of, of mindfulness. I think so. Um, so they were all the questions that um, I had on my list to ask. Um, is there anything that you uh, felt you would like to add about mindfulness that we haven't discussed? Yeah, so well, I mean, just uh, just to close up, one, I mean, there are, there are some tools for measuring mindfulness. One uh, that I think that uh, it can be part of uh, this um, this measurement. But the last thing I want to just leave uh, you with is the following: the the effect of that any intervention has to do with the state of mind of the intervener. So uh, so that's why it's so important that somebody want to deliver mindfulness really do do it in their own life. Because in a way, we transpire who we are and then the, and our state of embracing life ourselves as intervener, as interventionists, as, as doctors, nurses, physical therapists, um, has everything to do with hitting home, with actually translating the message. So, so that's why when you teach something like mindfulness, it's not something that you actually do in something external. It needs to come from the, your inner being, from actually embracing that, uh, you know, that philosophy of uh, awareness in the present life and not, not living in the automatic pilot or in the treadmill uh, of, of life, actually being able to stop and really um, be able to be in the moment with the patient. That, that is when the, the mindfulness intervention has the biggest and highest impact. Thank you to Dr. Harrison and Dr. Benzo for a comprehensive and informative introduction to mindfulness and its potential role for individuals with chronic lung disease. If there are any questions or comments relating to this podcast or suggestions for future topics, please contact the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly at palmrehab, P-U-L-M-R-E-H-A-B, at thoracic.org. Have a great day.